0: stand with me as we rise together to hear our sermon text this morning. You can turn your Bibles to Psalm 132 as we continue our morning series through the Psalms of Ascent. We come to the third to last psalm in this 15-psalm series near the end of God's Psalter. It is by far the longest one that we find in all of the Psalms of Ascent, 18 verses long. So let me read the text for us and then pray for God's blessing and we'll begin together. So here now as God speaks to us through his word. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes, or slumber to my eyelids, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephathra, and we gathered in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place, and let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might." Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, and if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions, and I will satisfy her with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together once again. Father, it's according to your abundant mercy and kindness that you come near to us by your word this morning, and we pray that your coming to us would be to speak words of life in our hearts and in our hearing. Your spirit might work within us to bring us to true repentance and faith that you would raise our gaze to where Jesus Christ is, seated at your right hand, for we know that looking on Him brings us life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Francis Schaeffer was a man 60 to 70 years ago that was a thinker and a teacher that had... A real profound influence on an older generation of English-speaking Christians. And the story is told where one day he was speaking with his wife, Edith, and he said, What if we woke up tomorrow morning and found that all the truths in the Bible about prayer and the Spirit were removed? Do you think anything would be different in our lives? And he went on in this hypothetical situation to confess that for many professing Christians, he feared that no discernible difference would be found in their lives if everything the Bible says about prayer, everything the Bible says about the Holy Spirit was now altogether absent from the Christian's experience. In other occasions, he would say similar things related to God's presence and mutter out loud that he feared if God's presence were to disappear from many local congregations that nobody would even notice it. The programs and ministries and singing and preaching and relationships would advance and they wouldn't realize that God had departed from the building. And the reason I tell you that is because we come to what is, no doubt, the longest psalm of ascent in the book of Psalms, twice as long as the second longest psalm of ascent. Yet within all of the phrases and the sentences, the statements and the prayers What we see is a very simple theme emerge. Uh, You might have noticed it as I was reading the passage, the number of times the psalmist uses this word, a place. Three times talking about dwelling place, or another two times talking about resting place. This is a psalm that's consumed with where God is, with enjoying God's presence. So it's a simple theme that we want to see from Psalm 132 today, is that God's presence is the supreme pleasure of His people. God's presence is the supreme pleasure of His people. Were you to wake up tomorrow morning and all of the truths about prayer, presence, and Holy Spirit, absent from your Bible, would anything be different in your life? I'm sure for many of us, perhaps more of us than want to admit, we'd have to say, our day wouldn't look too terribly different tomorrow. I sure hope by the end of this text we might be able to say with Moses, not just individually but corporately, As Moses said in Exodus 33, didn't he, when God said, I'm going to bring you into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. What does Moses say? Well, don't even send us. What's the point if you're not with us? What's the point of laboring tomorrow for the Lord if if he's not with you? What's the point of us, Lord willing, gathering next week, morning and evening, if God isn't with us as his people So what you want to see from this text, it comes in two neat halves. You'll see that in verse 2, as the psalmist recalls this oath that David swore to the Lord. If you skip down to verse 11, it's all about the second half, this oath that the Lord swore to David. So we're going to see, first of all, the prayer for God's presence in verses 1 through 10. And then verse 11 through 18, the promise of God's presence. So the prayer for God's presence, notice again verse 1. The psalmist cries, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all of the hardships he endured. So kids, think for a second about the life of King David. What significant events do you remember from King David's life? I'm sure, children, all of you might immediately race to David crushing, slaying, defeating that giant named Goliath. Others, you might think about the sin that he committed by taking Bathsheba to himself, and the subsequent sin that that generated, which was taking her husband Uriah's life. Well, the other central event that's so often forgotten in David's life is actually the one that this psalm centers on. You'll you'll find it. You don't need to turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. It's related to God's promise to David that began with David speaking about desire to build a place for God. Because we know that after many years, centuries even, the Ark of the Covenant, this, this unique place of God's presence, it finally had made its way into the city of Zion, the holy city of Jerusalem. And as it comes into Zion, there's great celebration, there's great excitement, David's dancing about in delight, but after some time, he, he begins to get a little bit discontent because he realizes some things aren't right, at least in his perspective, That. He always dwelt in this temporary tent called the tabernacle for, for so long. But David says, I want to build for you a place, a, a more permanent dwelling. And that's in the background. Notice of what we're told in verse 2 3. He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. Verse 4 I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. The great theologian Augustine of Hippo once confessed that the human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. And it's quite true, isn't it? You don't have to even be an expert observer of human society in the 21st century just to look out there. And when people reject God, when when people have unbelief towards Jesus Christ, the heart tends to be restless. Life tends to be full of, of sleeplessness. Even a recent National Geographic documentary talked about this. It was titled Sleepless in America. And it said 40% of American adults confess to have something like sleep deprivation. There's this profound restlessness in their hearts, even sleeplessness in their lives. And this documentary went to unfold how the modern form of human society, very much our technological age, wars against finding rest, finding actually sleep. And I would imagine for many of you in the room today, you have known perhaps even this week of what it means to be restless and sleepless to toss and turn in the middle of the night, not to be able to find this sleep, not be able to find this rest. Perhaps it's anxiety, might be fear, might be doubts, might be current suffering and situations. But but do you know that the Bible doesn't speak about restlessness as always a bad thing? As always a sign of a heart that's disjointed and disconnected from God, that there can be a a holy restlessness that belongs to the Christian life. Even a, a righteous sleeplessness that belongs to the Christian life. That's what the psalmist is recalling here with David. Even though we don't have the exact text in previous Old Testament books to which he's alluding to, no doubt it seems to be true from 2 Samuel that David decides, I am not going to sleep, kids. I am not going to lay down in my bed until I build for God what? Notice verse 5. I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. What is that holy restlessness in David's life but A desire to commune with God and be present with God in God's assigned place. And so you notice in verse 6, it has this description about the Ark of the Covenant floating through various regions in the ancient world, and it leads to this declaration. Look at verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Sometimes, actually it seems like weekly or on Saturdays, I'll mosey about the house and Look at the various children in the eyes and say, big day tomorrow. Big day tomorrow. And they'll know, dad, it's Sunday tomorrow. And so I'll say, big day tomorrow. Big day tomorrow. Why? Because the Lord summons us, doesn't he? Arise, go. He calls us to worship at his footstool, to go to his dwelling place. That's why you notice even verse 8, the summons continues. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you in the ark. Of your might. Uh, kids, you might remember from last year, I believe it wasn't too long ago, sometime last year, that we were in the book of Exodus and we were talking about this various furniture that the Old Covenant saints were supposed to put in the tabernacle. And do you remember, children, students, even, what the shape of that Ark of the Covenant was? If you go to the book of Exodus, you would find its descriptions and its dimensions were little more than the precise shape of an ancient footstool. Because it symbolized God's rule, his authority. Just as he sits ruling from his throne in heaven, this Ark of the Covenant was as his footstool where his feet ruled from earth and were with his people here on earth. And the psalmist is saying, again, arise and go to that place of rule and authority. I wonder if you have a place in your heart Even a time in your life when you've been so bold in prayer to say, Arise, Lord. Maybe it feels a little bit overbold to say that. God, get up and get going. That's a normal thing, actually, in Old Testament piety. We know from the book of Numbers that whenever God's people would get up in the wilderness wanderings, that morning they'd pack everything up. And what Moses would announce to the people is, Arise, O Lord, and tread upon your enemies. This is, this is a good prayer, isn't it? That God is, is strong enough, isn't he, for us when we are obedient and full of his covenant to say, Lord, won't you get going? Won't you arise and come to my place of need? Won't you get up and, and help me as you've promised to do? And so you see, the, the prayer continues, verse 9, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. Children, I'm sure that you know that when you change clothes, it sometimes does something to you in this mysterious way. You know, you put on pajamas, you know it's bedtime. You put on a uniform, you know it's game time. And you put on Sunday clothes, you know it's church time. So that's why throughout the Bible you have this metaphor of clothing that's often used to signify a person's spiritual condition. Clean, white robes mark off a person in holiness. Dirty, filthy robes mark off a person in their sinfulness. What are the kind of clothes that the psalmist prays would mark not just God's people, but particularly their leaders? It's righteousness. That's a good prayer even for us to apply in our own lives in Jesus Christ, as His covenant people even this day in this church, that you might pray that God would clothe your leaders with Righteousness. That you might be clothed with the joy and shouts of happiness. I wonder what you prayed for your leaders and fellow church members this week. Did you even pray for your leaders and fellow church members this week? Isn't it an evergreen request that you can just write into your prayer journal, Lord, clothe us with holiness. Clothe us with happiness in your presence. Well, verse 10 ends the prayer for God's presence. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Several years ago, a pastor friend of mine introduced me to the sermons and writings primarily of this old preacher named Octavius Winslow. He was supposedly in his time so useful in his ministry to ordinary men and women ordinary boys and girls, that people would refer to him as the pilgrim's companion. And in one of his best loved books, which still remains in print today, he begins that first chapter with a first sentence remarking about something he calls, quote, the jewelry of the Bible. And he goes on to speak of this subject as meeting the believer at every step of his or her journey, confronting every circumstance of his or her life, and chimes with each phase of his or her mental and spiritual experience. So what is the the jewelry of the Bible, he says, but God's precious promises. And it's those precious promises to which we turn now in our second half as we look at God's answer, really, to the prayer of the first half as we see the promise of God's presence, because depending on how you count it, verse 11 through 18, students, you can just kind of scan your way through, circle all the, the will statements of God promising something to his people. And there's at least eight promises that show up in this second half. And just as 2 Samuel 6 and 7, this kind of covenant background it grounded the first half, this prayer for God's presence, it really is at the foreground still in God's promise. Notice verse 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall... Teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So, students, what he's alluding to here is truth that we find in 2 Samuel 7, don't we, of what we often call the Davidic covenant. And it's an important phrase for you to know, students, children, parents, the Davidic covenant, because it's impossible, genuinely impossible, to understand the rest of God's word if you don't understand this promise that God made to David that someone from his line would sit eternally in authority and rule and reign from God's throne. And what we know throughout the Old Testament is that when God makes these kind of covenant promises and he draws near in his covenant grace to his people, it's always of his sovereign initiative, isn't it? We know from books of the Bible, like Deuteronomy, is that he tells Israel that I have chosen you in sovereign grace. I've chosen you out of all the nations of the earth, not because of anything you've done, but because of my own purpose and plan, and he, can say the same, can't he, to to David. And of all the people in Israel, I've chosen you according to my sovereign grace. He can even say, you'll notice in verse 13, out of all the cities of the earth, he's chosen Zion, Jerusalem. Notice what it says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Look at verse 14. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. It's a good verb, isn't it? Desired. To be with my people. Because in the age in which we live, this new covenant era, life under Jesus Christ, those promises, those assurances, those those words are still true of every single one of us in the room today. If you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, because isn't it true that if you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, that the Holy Spirit, what does he do? He takes up residence in your heart. Your heart becomes a temple for the Lord. His resting place and his dwelling place. And what you want to see, don't you, from verse 13 and 14 is that this isn't out of just kind of constrained obligation. Fine, I guess I'll build a heart in her home. Well, I might as well build a heart in his home too. You see, it's out of desire to be with his people. Uh, Some of you in here today, your, your heart is indeed absent of God's constructing work of his presence and see something of his love and kindness and compassion towards you this day, then the preacher of the gospel, what you hear is that he desires to be with you. He's not obligated to be with you. He's not reluctant and hesitant to be with his people. What is he? Desirous to be with his people. So if he's with us, what happens? Look at verse 15 and 16. I will abundantly bless her provisions I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. Yeah, see, verse 16 isn't really just the answer to the prayer. Verse 9. But let's think about this abundant provision of verse 15. My wife spent a number of years in her childhood as a missionary kid in Nigeria. And my in-laws have often told the story of when... My wife and and brother-in-law came back to America of their paralyzed amazement when they walked into an American grocery store for the first time and saw the cereal aisle. Sugary goodness as far as the eye can see. (laughs) They wrap around one aisle and go to the next. And it just seems like from their previous experience, there are supplies and goodness everywhere. And in a much more expanded and eternal way, isn't that what God is promising unto us? Abundant satisfaction in his supplies. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will clothe her priests with salvation. In other words, I will make good on my promise that you just prayed for. I wonder if you've taken any one of God's promises in his covenant of grace this weekend and prayed for them. Praying for them with faith and patience, knowing that God will answer in this perfect time according to his. Covenant King Jesus Christ, which is the person to whom verse 17 and 18 raise our attention. Notice verse 17, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. It's there in Zion that this horn is going to more literally blossom. Now, now, kids, if you know a ram's horn, you know that they don't blossom, do they? You know, Flowers blossom. But the idea in the Old Testament of a ram's horn, this, this horn that you'll use throughout the scriptures as a, a symbol and a sign of, of might, of strength and authority, what he's saying is the anointed's strength and authority is going to flourish like a flower, flourish even for all eternity. There's this flaming torch, there's this fire that's going to go before him, which is alluding to this promise that God made to Solomon, David's son in Second Kings 11, isn't it, when he says that there's always going to be this light burning. That's why many people, even this psalm, maybe came from the pen of Solomon, that someone from, from David's family would burn forever as a torch in God's temple. But we know, don't we, if we know our Bible well enough, that when God draws near, it is good news. But it's not good news for everybody. Look at verse 18. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him, that being the anointed, his crown Will shine. So students, you're meant to see the Lord here, Yahweh, in a reverent way, as something like a divine outfitter. That he is going to clothe every single person in the room today, eventually. If the Lord was to come and take you home to eternity today, what clothing would you receive? What garments would you receive? The warning here, of course, is that for those that continue to reject Jesus Christ, that remain in unbelief towards the Lord... Their clothing will be that of eternal judgment, punishment unto everlasting shame. But those that turn to Jesus Christ and and look to him, counted righteous in him alone, they too will receive this shining crown of salvation set upon their head for all eternity. There's a prayer for God's presence. Yahweh answers with a promise for his presence. Earlier this week, someone sent me a 17-verse poem that was written by a poet named Thomas Hardy in 1912. The poem is really kind of turgid and useless. But uh, the title is quite striking. God's Funeral. And what he's doing in many ways at that time in the second decade of the 20th century, he's drawing this straight line from his poem to something of a parable from from Nietzsche in decades previous that had this famous character that was wandering around the churches at the time and and crying out, what are these churches but empty tombs and sepulchres of God? Uh, What did he mean is that you could go into all these Protestant churches at the time and it's nothing more than tombs to the truth, graves of God, because God's not there anymore. But nobody realizes it. And let's pray that that never is possible in this church. That we might become and not even realize it. A tomb of God's truth. A grave of of God's grace. It's the supreme pleasure of his people. God's presence. And so as we begin to close. Let me bring three simple responses to you. That our text calls for in its 18 verses. The first of which is remember God's covenant. If you glance back up to verse 1, of course, the the direction of the remembrance is that the Lord would remember his people, but if you understand how the text continues to flow forth, is not the psalmist always remembering God's covenant in his prayer? He's recalling God's covenant in his his petitions. Uh, For some of you, I, I suppose the best thing that you could do today is after you leave this place and sit down for a grateful lunch with friends or family or even by yourself, you just walk into your place of prayer and Perhaps you get on your knees and you ask the Lord to remember his covenant promise towards you. Uh, Maybe you have children wandering, lost in their spiritual lives. Remember, O Lord, your covenant promise to me and my children. Remember, O Lord, if you are in a place of need, uh, your promise to provide for everything that I need out of the riches of glory in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're in a season of suffering of hardship, affliction. You bend the knee and say, remember, O Lord, that you promised to be a shield and sustainer in my suffering. Maybe there's this constant temptation that you keep giving into and you hate it. You say, remember, O Lord, your spirit's power to mortify my sinful desires. Remember God's covenant. Number two, resolve to enjoy God's presence. You see verse one again, it mentions these hardships that David endured. It's a language in the original that you can almost translate as self-denial, remember the self-denial of, of David. And so it's why throughout the century, as many people have thought, it's, it's spoken most directly to this incredible work that David did at the end of his life to get the temple ready for his son Solomon to build, because he said, you know, I'm not going to rest until I find a resting place for God, and God says, no, you're a man of war, your son's going to build that temple. So David, if you ever kind of turn later on today to 1 Chronicles 22 and you did the necessary calculations and translations of the, the weights from Old Testament to modern day, what you would find is that later on in his life, his resolve to, to see God's presence placed there in Zion meant he gathered 7.5 million ton, or million pounds of gold, 100 million pounds of silver, bronze and iron beyond weighing, the text says. It's, it's a financial sum that genuinely boggles the mind. But it was worth it to enjoy God's presence. Or maybe it's like the ESV translates here. It's just simple hardships, the sufferings, the battles, the the fights that he had to endure to bring that Ark of the Covenant, a place of God's presence to the city of Zion. Whatever it is, the simple point that you need to see here is David was willing to pay whatever price it was to be with God. I wonder if you've had to lay something aside recently to be with God. I'm sure that many of you know, perhaps one of the most countercultural ways in which we live as faithful Christians this day is that on the Lord's Day Sunday, we just lay aside worldly concerns to be with God. Many of you know, though, don't you, how hard that can be to lay aside concerns of the world that you might enjoy a day of, of communion with God. So we remember God's covenant. We resolve to enjoy God's presence. Finally, we... Rejoice in God's Son. We Rejoice in in God's Son. Because it seems as though as the psalm begins that it's focusing our attention on, on David, on King David. But by the end, what we're noticing is it's really focusing our attention on David's son to come. David's descendant that's on the way, the Anointed One, which you could translate as the Messiah. Which the New Testament translates as Christ. That's pointing our attention, isn't it? On the one who was resolved to bring God's presence. Because you and I know the ways in which we have failed to enjoy God's presence. You and I know the ways in which we have failed to prize God's presence. And Jesus Christ willing to lay down his very life, shed his blood that we might enjoy God's presence. For he of course is God's presence. He of course is the covenant. He is the one in whom we find rest. And in the preaching of the gospel and the declaration of his word he says, Come to me, all of you. And you'll find rest in me. So what do we do? We, we remember God's covenant. Meaning we remember Jesus Christ. We resolve to enjoy God's presence. We resolve to enjoy Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in him. Because it's in Jesus Christ. Planted into our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. And the application of it by the spirit. That God draws near. That we too might. Lift up shouts of joy. Unto the Lord. The supreme pleasure. Of God's people. Is that gloriously simple? That's none other than God's Son. Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask this day that by your word and spirit you would draw near to us as you have promised. As we draw near to you, you will respond in kind. That you will draw near to us. And so give us hearts that are increasingly zealous. Increasingly fervent to commune with you. By your ordinary means of grace. We do thank you even this day. You have drawn near to us. Strengthen us we pray. Sustain us we ask. Bring us greater joy in Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.